You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, this is Robert Wright. Fourteen years ago, I co-founded Blogging Heads TV, which produces the podcast you're about to hear. And I'd like to ask you for some help. Blogging Heads is an independent podcast network that presents a diversity of views, including some that are well outside the mainstream, and provides a place for civil discussion between people who disagree with each other. We think this is very important at a time when political polarization is a famously big problem, and a lot of podcasts, with all due respect, sound like ideological echo chambers. If you want to help support our mission, you can make a donation by going to patreon.com slash nonzerofoundation. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash N-O-N-Z-E-R-O Foundation. The Non-Zero Foundation is the nonprofit I run that operates Blogging Heads TV and also operates Meaning of Life TV and puts out the Non-Zero newsletter. And by the way, you can get that newsletter for free by going to nonzero.org and subscribing. Now, if you don't feel like supporting our endeavors financially, we of course encourage other forms of support like rating and reviewing our podcasts on iTunes or on the podcast app of your choice, or standing on street corners singing our praises, or whatever. In any event, thanks for listening. Hi, welcome to Blogging Hits TV. My name is Arya Cohen-Wade, and I'm your host on Culturally Determined. And my guest today is uh, Milton Lawson. Uh, Milton, could you introduce yourself? Hello there, Milton Lawson here, independent comic book writer out of Houston, Texas, home of the World Series bound and three games to two leading Houston Astros and uh, ex-blogging heads video editor guy. Um, so thank you for coming back on Culture Determined. I think this is your this will be your third time being on, which I think is record tying. I'm not sure anyone's been on four times. A couple of people have been on three times. But you're joining, you're joining an elite pantheon right now. Um, so we're going to be talking about um, some stuff that some of it is related to uh, comic books and the entertainment industry, and some of it is related to uh, some projects that you've been working on yourself. And so we're going to start with uh, this, the Watchmen series that's on HBO. Uh, we're, we're taping this on Monday. The second episode just aired last night. Uh, you know, they're they're putting a lot into the show. It's in pro- the prime slot that. That had right. Uh, that had um, Game of Thrones and Sopranos and you know the Sunday night slot, um, and it's a very um, strange show so far because it's has the same name as this famous uh, comic book series slash graphic novel called Watchmen, which you just held up. That is widely considered the greatest comic book or graphic novel, at least about superheroes, ever made, and. In some ways, I've been thinking about it as kind of like the Ulysses of comic books. Um, it's okay. like, you know, it's it kind of like changed the entire landscape of comics, and it's very intricate, and you can spend hours poring over it and finding these little connections and details all through it. And uh, so there was a people have probably at least heard of this comic by now. It's a a movie came out ten years ago, directed by Zack Snyder, that was at best kind of middling and but and also many people did not like it at all but it was weirdly faithful to parts of the comic and then changed other parts of it um and it was, so the comic was written by alan moore who is I, I i think the greatest living comic book writer um and maybe the greatest comic book writer of all time and he has kind of like disavowed any adaptation or other version of this so his name is not on any any of the subsequent stuff they've done with it uh, the artist Dave Gibbons is still involved <laughs> um, with this, and so anyway, so uh, David Lindelof, who is uh, was one of the showrunners on Lost and also did The Leftovers on HBO, has created this kind of um, sequel adaptation reimagining um, that is really, yeah, like I said, it's really unusual because they haven't, you know, it's it's not really about the the main characters are not characters that were present in the original work. It takes place. The original work took place in 1985. This takes place in the present, and uh, a lot of theme. There are a lot of new themes that don't that really weren't dealt with in the original, specifically like race and American history, um, and the like legacy of racial violence in America. That's nothing in the original had anything to do with that. Um, so yeah, so people are both like puzzled, excited, 
angry, <laughs> all sorts of emotions about, about this. So, so what have you thought about it so far? Well, um, I, I think you did a fantastic summary, and I, I co-sign uh, Alan Moore as the greatest living comic writer as someone who has uh, put his toe in the waters trying to write comics. Um, whenever I get stuck and I need to go to some source material, um, I go back to Alan Moore, and it kind of makes all of us just seem like we're just pretenders. <laughs> there, he's he's just a master of the medium. And I know that Watchmen is his most well known. I highly recommend people check out some of his other works, uh, such as Swamp Thing would probably be the best thing to go for after Watchmen. Uh-huh. Um, so he also did to, he also did a couple of things that have been adapted into big properties in the past twenty years, which were V for Vendetta, yeah. probably the most, which has the Guy Fox masks and kind of like was inspired, inspired like a cultural trend of those masks. And uh, From Hell was a movie. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen was a very bad movie. There were one or two <laughs> others, I think. But he's a lot of his stuff has been adapted for the screen, and none of them have been very good. And I think that led him to say, like, you know, what, I'm not putting my name on, on anything else. Yeah. And a lot of that has to do with uh, business-related issues. Uh, the fact that he is not rolling in dough from uh, – or at least the level of dough he's he's uh, probably deserved to have on Watchmen is due to uh, some communications from the publisher that, if not downright fraudulent, uh, were you know right on the edge of the letter of the law. There, you know, he really should own the characters at this point, uh, based on what he was promised. But the the publisher got away with screwing him. Um, yeah, there's a long history well, I, di- discussed in a previous episode when I talked to G here about the death of Stan Lee, about the um, comics publisher screwing over the creators. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah, he wasn't unique in that regard. And on the HBO series, I, I come to it uh, both as a fan of Watchmen, uh, but also as a fan of Damon Lindelof generally, uh, the, the final season of Lost Exempted. Uh, but... Uh, I was blown away by the leftovers and I thought he was operating at the highest level of the television medium at the end of that third season. Uh, so I came to this with a lot of excitement and trepidation, but uh, thus far I'm extremely excited with what's going on and the way you've described how, how much it differs from the original source material is definitely part of its appeal to me. It's, it's a singular thing. It's within the spirit of Watchmen, uh, but it feels entirely its own. Um, it's definitely more overtly political and contemporary than Watchmen was originally. Um, I do think there was a little bit of racial politics in Rorschach um, back in the original comic, but it was kind of very coded – you know, like welfare queens, this and that, you know, nothing as as strong as the imagery and the, the thematics that we've got so far in the yeah. HBO show. Yeah, Rorschach is kind of a Reagan-era reactionary, although there is no Reagan in the world of Watchmen because Nixon, um, the, the history, prehistory of the Watchmen universe is this guy is created through an accident and like during the like Manhattan Project, and he becomes basically a living god, and he can do he can grow to a hundred feet tall. He's all blue, you know, his skin is blue. He can rearrange matter with his mind. He can shoot laser beams. You know, he, he's he can do basically whatever he thinks. And so um, he helps uh, the government uh, win the Vietnam War. And after that, Nixon is reelected, and there's a little there's also a little part where a character called the comedian. Um, murders um, Woodward and Bernstein. So Watergate never is uncovered. Nixon is reelected and keeps on being president kind of for life um, because, you know, he was just so so popular um, about that. So, but it, yeah, a lot of it is is kind of like this world, this like gritty world of like, it's more like 70s New York than, than 80s New York really. And, kind of, and so something we'll maybe refer to uh, later, kind of a taxi driver, uh, feel to it, and mm-hmm. yeah. So Rorschach is this you know, yeah, kind of like urban vigilante character. So much so, like I I have not read the original in about ten years, and I I started going back through it uh, today uh, in the spirit of our discussion and uh, watching the show. And there, the first entry of Rorschach's journal just reads as a total Travis Bickle kind of thing. Uh, one panel in particular just uh, 
made me made me smile. Um, he's describing the street, and he goes, "The dusk reeks of fornication and bad consciences." <laughs> right. So yeah. So the the comic is. Um, yeah, so it, lo- it looks great. Like everything about the comic is basically great. Um, so, so like I said, it's it's almost like you know someone was like, I'm going to write a sequel to Ulysses, but it's going to be you know it's going to be a podcast or something like it's in a different medium. <laughs> it's a it's it's a sequel to something that's considered the like one of the definitive works in the genre that was closed. Actually, I mean, DC has brought back some of these characters in the past five to 10 years and tried to integrate them into the regular DC universe. But I don't think that's really been successful. And Alan Moore was, was not involved at all. Um, but anyway, so yeah, so then the, the show is just, it, I mean, in some ways I, I was actually joking that it's like, if I was like, um, you know, writing a script about like the transformers and I wanted it to be about like, um, you know, a welfare reform or something like it seems to be tackling, issues that really have no connection although maybe they maybe they will find connections to to the original and as has been noted a lot online the the very opening of the show takes place during the uh, uh tulsa race riot um which is a like semi-forgotten piece of history that has been re- like remembered in the past 20 years or so where this is like the original meaning of race riot where like white people would attack black people um in a like it's basically like a pogrom but there was even parts of it that I didn't know about, and I like vaguely knew about it, which was like uh, airplane. This was like in 1920 or so. Airplanes were used to drop incendiaries on buildings. There was a part of Tulsa, Oklahoma, that was a very wealthy black neighborhood that was called uh, Black Wall Street, and some sort of incident that was like you know a, a black young man was was charged with some crime uh, sparked this um, attack, and this whole like neighborhood was leveled, like literally like leveled to the ground and. Uh, it's still unknown how many people were murdered in this attack um, because the bodies, you know, the bodies were buried and never, never found again, some of them. So just this, it, it, this is the kind of thing that, like, they don't teach you in American history class generally. I can't remember how I learned about it to begin with, but I was aware that it happened. But you saw a lot of people tweeting things like, I, you know, I'm 40 years old and I never knew this event occurred before I saw this episode of Watchmen. So that's just, I mean, that's interesting. They filmed it in a very, like, Saving Private Ryan, like, verite style, and, like, it was very gripping. Um, but it's also, like, what, like, what is, ha- what is happening? What, should this be, like, in a movie with a giant, or in a TV show with a giant blue god figure? <laughs> and, um, or, or why, yeah, why is, I mean, we, I guess we have to wait to see, to, like, why racial, like, racial violence is what, um, is what Lindelof wanted to do with this story. Um, but it does still seem strange to me. Yeah, yeah, it does seem strange. Uh, although um, uh, it's it's fueling a lot of really brilliant imagery. Like one of, one of the virtues of the show thus far is there's a lot of reversals of uh, contemporary racial moments, uh, but the the races of the people involved in the moments are reversed from what we're normally accustomed to. Like in the first episode, there's a tense moment between a police officer and what seems like a potentially a routine traffic stop that's going to escalate and go violent and the police officer in question is black and the uh tense um person pulled over is white and but you've got that same rhythm and feel of uh all the viral videos that have been uh circulating in the past few years and then uh, there's a very graphic uh, lynching in the story, uh, but the person that's lynched is a white person. And, there, and there's an elderly black man played by uh, Lou Gossett Jr. who claims that he was the one who lynched him. We don't exactly know what that means. Um, yeah, it seems like, I mean, they're setting things up. It seems like they're setting things up for some kind of reversal. I don't know. So in this world, it, it, still, it, takes, it takes place mainly in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And it seems like um, the government did acknowledge the, you know, the massacre of the black citizens and implemented some sort of like reparations. They call it Redfordations or something because um, <laughs> because Robert Redford is president now and he's been president for 30 years after Nixon lost um, or died or something. So it's, it's kind of like what if a like benign liberal like president for life 
had been president for the past 30 years, like what would have happened? And there's a very surprising um, cameo in the second episode, which is um, the historian Harry Louis Gates Jr., who is oh, yeah. <laughs> primarily known for the for uh, doing things on PBS, and he's but he's also a a serious scholar and. He is the secretary of the treasury and he is and there's like a little automated kiosk where someone can go and submit their DNA to see if they were related to one of the people killed in the uh, race riot. And then they could qualify for like government assistance. So it seems like there's been a at least in this one, at least in Oklahoma, like the racial hierarchy has been reversed. And, um, you know, the, the black citizens of Tulsa are at the like top of the socioeconomic ladder and then the white ones are below. And then there's this kind of revived Ku Klux Klan that is inspired by Rorschach, the character we were discussing earlier, the vigilante character, and they wear, um, they wear masks like Rorschach. Um, so there's, yeah, there's just a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of just crazy things in here. It's almost like they were like, okay, we're going to take this character from the original and like pick a like word out of the dictionary and we'll say like, okay, you know, uh, Rorschach, KKK, like there's really, I mean, we said Rorschach was kind of a reactionary character, but like, it's not, he's not like, I wouldn't say he's a full-blown like Klansman. Um, yeah. So there's, <laughs> there's just a lot of weird stuff here. I, I, in some ways I feel like it's, I don't know, like he wanted to, to tell this story and then he heard that the Watchmen property was available to make a TV show. And he's like, let's do both. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that's what we're getting. But again, it, it is like, it is like lost in that it's clearly like a puzzle box and there's lots of things that are going on that maybe aren't what they seem or little clues are being planted of things that'll happen yeah. later on. So I'm, I'm going to keep watching and I'm, you know, optimistic, but also, also kind of like, this is just a very strange cultural product. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And what's irresistible in talking and thinking about uh, a project such as this is the, uh, the tension between honoring the spirit of an original, um, not recycling an original, and um, trying to chart a new path, and uh, the trap of um, of uh, you know just just recreation for the sake of recreation the original uh, you know and, and doing nothing uh, new with it and I thought there was a moment that really illustrated that sort of nostalgia trap um, in the second episode there's this interesting moment where this totally isolated version of what we assume is Ozymandias but hasn't been right. said in the show yet uh, played by Jeremy Irons and he writes a play starring his wait staff uh, that he is going to entertain himself with uh, that recreates an iconic moment from the original Watchmen. And so there's this like ridiculously, I don't like know how many meta levels that is, but it's it's just fascinating to watch that. Yeah. It's like, so it's a, it's like a play within the play, like in Hamlet. But also it's something that if you read the book, you saw already, but it's kind of different. But then also it's revealed that these, uh, spoiler alert, that these servants of his are all clones. And he like, right. every time he wants to put on one of these plays, he, um, he burns one of them to death. Um, just, you know, just for verisimilitude or something. And then they take and the body. The moment, they and don't know that he's a clone. <laughs> well, okay. It seems like they're clones or something that could be like cyborgs maybe. Um, but they all, all the men look the same and all the women look the same. Yeah. Yeah. And so this character, Ozymandias, uh, Adrian Veidt in the comics is kind of, um, spoiler alert, this, you know, this thing came out like 35 years ago. He's revealed to be like the villain, uh, seemingly a hero revealed to be the villain of the comic. And he uh, pulls this stunt where he sends a, um, a giant psychic squid into the center of Manhattan and it kills 3 million people. And uh, which leads everyone on earth to think that aliens are about to attack. And so the Americans and the Soviets have to put aside their, their differences and stop threatening each other with nuclear war and work together to, to fend off the alien invasion. Um, so he thinks, so he's kind of like, you know, he, he's the smartest man on earth and he thinks he knows what's best for humanity. And he makes, he chooses to sacrifice millions of innocent people um, in midtown Manhattan in order to, in his opinion, save, save the world. So he, so this is seemingly the only character so far, direct character from the original who's being recreated. And um, yeah, it's just, I mean, it's an odd performance where it's very unclear what is happening. 
uh, what he's doing there. He, yeah, he seems he seems like trapped by the past. Um, and and he says actually a famous line from the comic in, in at the end of the episode. Um, nothing nothing ever ends, um, which is what Doctor Manhattan says to after he you know has revealed the plot. Doctor Manhattan says to uh, says to Ozymandias, um, like Ozymandias says something like, "Was it worth it in the end?" and and, and Doctor Manhattan, the godlike character, says nothing ever ends. Um, so, the, you know, they're, they're using direct lines. They are using some of these characters. I don't know. I, I, I got, maybe this will be one of those shows that you have to watch the full length of before rendering mm-hmm. any sort of real critical judgment because there's misdirection yeah. involved and yeah. so much is so much is uncertain. Um, but I don't know. If you have HBO, check it out. I would say. What, yeah. what would you say to someone who has no background with the comics? It has no interest in comics. Do you, do you think this show would be interesting to them? That is a very fascinating question. I think so, just because on its own level, it's it's a fascinating world um, with all of these bizarre characters and amazing imagery. Like one of one of the cool things about the HBO version is, you know. Um, when trying to do something in the vein of Watchmen, you're going to want to have a Rorschach type of really compelling, nebulous-faced character. And uh, they've done that with this character called Looking Glass, played by Tim Blake Nelson, who wears this chrome mask on his face most of the time. And it gives you a sort of... You know, what you look into it is what you see, you know, inkblot, Rorschach-y sort of vibe to it. And he's and they put him one, inside... of the, one of the good guys, although who knows exactly what's going to happen. Right, right. They, they draw the parallel with, with Rorschach very explicitly when he uh, just takes the part of his mask up to his nose and starts, like, eating something messily, um, which is how Rorschach would, like, eat a can of beans in the original comic. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the, okay, but the, let's just mention the main character briefly. Um, played by Regina King, is that is that the actress's name? Yes. yes. Um, so she is a superhero mask. I think they, they call them. She she doesn't seem to have any actual powers as in, in this universe. Really, the only powered character was Doctor Manhattan, and everything kind of and so technology changed because of him. But like most of the superheroes um, are just normal people who you know can um, are like good at karate and stuff. So so she seems to be just kind of like that. She seems to be she like once was a cop. Uh, it was revealed that in episode two that there was a attack by the um, Rorschach KKK, which has some name. Do you remember what's called? It's still like seven, seven something. I think it's the cavalry. Maybe they call them seventh cavalry, perhaps. Um, so they they had an organized attack on all the, on the police of Tulsa at one point in the past and like killed dozens of them, and they um, tried to kill. Uh, Regina King's character and she was able to fight them off but it seems like maybe that's what inspired her to um, uh, become become a mask and in her ostensible civilian life she just like runs a bakery or something <laughs> but uh, so she's not explicitly associated with the cops anymore um, and I mean one of the I mean one of the kind of interesting things is you know what what is this show saying about the cops and is it is it the good thing to say about the cops? Because obviously, over the past ten years or so, you know, whether cops are good or bad, and whether blue lives matter or black lives matter or all lives matter or whatever, is like one of the you know major political theme. And in this, the cops are presented as the good guys under siege from the white supremacists, and the cops start wearing masks. Also, if they're more like just like. Um, like turtlenecks or something that they pull up, and, and and they're held back by like presumably the Redford uh, driven uh, anti Second Amendment, you know, hyper regulated. Right. You know, they've really got to show and prove every little use of force that they ever want to do. Right. So, that, so there's a very so the, the one of the very first scenes after the in the first episode after the scene of the Tulsa massacre is showing this uh, police stop. And so the cop, uh, which you described earlier, the cop goes back to the car and he wants to get his gun, but he has to call into like the central headquarters and request request that his gun be unlocked so that he can pull it out. And he's talking to someone and the guy is kind of like doesn't realize the severity of the situation. And it's like, well, does he seem dangerous to you? And he's like, yes, yes, unlock, unlock. And then he doesn't get it unlocked in time. The guy and the 
presumably the the guy who was in the car shoots him. So yeah, it's, it's, so some people interpreted that as a you know the, like the liberal fantasy of how how, how like police work <laughs> be done in America is like you know the cop has to like get approval from like multiple people before they can shoot anyone because. Uh, some people believe, and I would agree with this, that like cops are too eager to shoot people in, in America. Um, and then this showed, you know, if, if this was taken to its logical conclusion, then maybe it would be, it would be way too dangerous uh, for the cops. And then, but then, you know, I think there's. Um, so we haven't even mentioned uh, this character played by Don, Don Johnson, who, spoiler alert, <laughs> um, uh, is killed at the very end of the first episode. So that was, that was surprising that they get this big actor and. Um, you know, kill him off immediately, and he is the chief of police in Tulsa, and he's friends with Regina King's character. And then it's revealed that seems like something else is going on with him. And Regina King is sneaking around in his uh, closet and finds a clan, uh, you know, robe and hood, uh, like hanging, like you know, <laughs> like presented like it's a trophy or something in the back yeah. of his closet. So was he, you know, was is he a secret uh, white supremacist? Uh, what exactly is going on here? I, I don't know if we can say. But okay, what what are your thoughts on how the police are being presented in, in, in the show? Well, I'm fascinated by by that uh, part of it, just because they are in an era where presumably, you know, if you if you're going to assume that this is some Hollywood liberal um, agenda driven story uh, about racial politics, uh, grounding the protagonists in the imagery and the scenarios of uh, contemporary police officers, I think is a, a zigzag where you're not expecting it. Mm-hmm. And I, it's, it's just another one of those uh, disorienting uh, bits of originality. They keep the whole thing compelling. Another, another example of that to me is um, it, at one point, I think it's in the second episode, you get this, uh, african-american news seller uh talking about the the news of the day and he's just rattling off what's clearly a, a sort of alex jones style worldview where he he thinks everything is a false flag and uh it's just kind of interesting to see uh an african-american character uh criticizing a liberal president uh with with that sort of a uh critique and um, also along those lines, uh, you, you mentioned about Don Johnson's character uh, maybe being – he starts out, you think he's uh, a honorable, uh, justice-oriented guy who's against the Klan, but then he seems to maybe have the secret. But Regina King's character is skeptical of that because of her connection. But uh, given the history of the comic – there's sort of a false flaggy type thing that happens in the comic. Right. And so is this a double false flag scenario? I mean, it's just, it, it keeps you guessing and it, um, it's not clear exactly where this uh, authority is leading. And the fact that our protagonist is within that realm, uh, I could see it going either way. They could turn out to be some sort of nefarious uh, structure in this world or not. Yeah, I think it, I mean, it, <laughs> I think it's interesting that um, they made the seeming protagonist uh, a black female superhero former cop, and in that way, they're at least pissing everyone <laughs> off who has a you know, prejudice against one of those things a little bit. Well, not, I, mean, I don't know if anyone really has a prejudice against superheroes and will be watching this show, but um, yeah, they're scrambling it and not making it simple. Maybe Mister Scorsese, <laughs> right? Okay, we'll get to that in a second. Um, in the in the way that in the comic. You're led to believe from the beginning because he's kind of the point of view narrator that Rorschach is like a hero. He's like the detective investigating the comedian's murder. And like you realize more and more like, oh, this guy's a sociopath. <laughs> and then um, and then at the end of the comic, he gets um, like blown to smithereens, literally, because he wants to undo the uh, the fact that, you know, the, the alien attack was a fake. And that would have you know meant that the you know millions of people had died in vain. Um, so he's kind of a... Yeah, so he's <laughs> there was an interesting. I, I listened to a podcast that was that's called Struggle Session, and it was with um, the guest is Will Meneker, who's been on 
been on Blogging Heads and is also um, the primarily known for Trap or Trap House. And so they were kind of talking about Watchmen from like a leftist perspective and trying to say who was the um, the moral center of Watchmen and sort of like the naive reading or like the bad fan reading, like this whole idea that like Tony Soprano is good or Walter White is good. The, bad, the naive reading is that like Rorschach is the moral center and hero because like he was right um, about, you know, he like wanted to do the right thing, tell the truth. And then I think that, but they were saying that um, Ozymandias was the, the moral center because he was the one who was like willing to step outside the like conventional frame and like solve the problem of nuclear war through this extreme means. And I was thinking and I, uh, that it's really, uh, uh, you know, these two other characters, Laurie and Dan, who are kind of the, you know, they, they kind of like re after becoming, after giving up their superhero lifestyles, they kind of like return to normal life and seemingly have like a happy life together. Um, yeah, so I don't know where I'm going. With this. We'll have to see who is who is the real like who's the real main character of Watchmen mm-hmm. the TV show, and what, who, what is there one moral point of view being presented, or is it more complicated than that? Obviously, Watchmen the original is open to many many different readings, which is why it's like you know sustained as, sustained as a uh, art for you know as a, a work of art that we're still talking about thirty five years later. Yeah. Okay, well, let's move on to another topic. I think we spent a little too much time on that, so we'll try to do this one a little bit shorter, <laughs> which is um, there's been a brouhaha over the past couple of weeks um, where uh, Martin Scorsese, the famed director, uh, and you can rattle off all of his films, um, I guess Goodfellas is maybe the, the most famous, uh, has said, said in an interview that someone asked him what he thought of the Marvel movies or the comic book movies, and he said, uh, the, I don't think these are cinema, they're more like amusement parks or something like this. And this has pissed a lot of people off in a strange way. I mean, I don't know who would have thought that Martin Scorsese was like, oh yeah, Ant-Man, he's my favorite. You know, uh, he, he like, he, he's not, his interests seemingly don't super align with the Marvel stuff. But what, what did you think of this whole, um, you know, to-do? Um... I well, uh, the to do itself, I, I was not a fan of uh, the the immediate reaction. As as a comics fan, I I'm immersed in social media with uh, a lot of folks that uh, are you know make mine Marvel, True Blue, uh, uh, just uh, love anything and everything in all the formats, whether it's the, the comics the graphic novels the the movies the tv shows and anything that encroaches on that territory in a negative uh framework they immediately lash out and feel like they've been bullied and overreact and say a lot of really ridiculous things and um the the initial social media pushback was beyond silly and hyperbolic um i do think that there's obviously a nuanced reading as to what Scorsese was saying, and myself as a fan of both the silly superhero genre and the oeuvre of Mr. Scorsese, um, you know, there's, I think that there's a reading of, of what he's saying that may be true for most viewers, that these are just pure escape. They are, especially if you see them in 3D or on IMAX, they are a big ride, um, and you can imagine this going further into virtual reality and the, those sorts of things um, that seem to uh, give most audiences a um, uh, just a, a pure immediate sensation and nothing more. Um, and, and the cinema that Scorsese tries to represent with his own films and with his massive history of uh, guiding other viewers through the history of cinema with his documentaries and his, his commentaries. Um, It it speaks to the human condition and uh, you see the world through the, the eyes of all of the filmmakers and uh, that type of experience. uh, I think that he feels that that's not ever there in the superhero genre. Um, I actually differ with him on that point. Some of us actually do find meaning and connection beyond just the simple immersive sensations and bells and whistles and ups and downs and roller coaster aspects of it. You know, it's very simple morality stuff. It's very simple uh, themes about courage and facing your demons and the, you know, whatever metaphors you want to put on them, uh, you know, it may be, insulting to 
literary criticism to call it uh, uh, any of these terms, but like just for myself, uh, I, in the past year, I, I had a really creepy, horrible uh, thing happen to me. I had a um, situation go wrong with one of my eyes, and I ended up having to have uh, these uh, uncomfortable treatments uh, where they stick needles in my eyeballs, oh, um, which which is not fun. And the very first time it happened to me, it's, you know, the full on like clockwork orange, they, they open up your eye and, 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 and it's multiple needles because you have like, there's the needle that's going to numb you to the pain for the big ass needle that's coming next. And I have to say, you know, I'm a, I'm a total, uh, you know, secular humanist atheist, uh, without <laughs> greater cosmic powers to draw upon. And when that fucking needle was coming towards my eye, you know, it was images of courage from like films like The Matrix or Captain America that kind of put me through that. Mm-hmm. And I know it's like wow. a totally silly thing, mm-hmm. but I that's where I would differ with Scorsese, that there is some sort of connection like at like a Joseph Campbellian mythological level for these films. So in my retort, yeah, it's fucking cinema. <laughs> right. So, I mean, part of it is that like, is there a difference between cinema, you know, and film or movies or what other, whatever other thing? It's kind of like, you know, a romance novel isn't literature. It's just a book or something. So, yeah. uh, you know, in the, in the world, yeah. So if someone was like, if some, if Harold Bloom, uh, RIP, the late literary critic, um, <laughs> had once said, you know, like he insulted um, Harry Potter. Right. Yeah. And when it came out and he said, he called them like, um, Di- you know, di- no, like penny, penny dreadfuls, I think is what he just described them as, and kind of like you know, this is just for children, little, just like junk, basically. Um, and and I remember when that happened, like people got pissed off that the you know the snooty guy was was saying that their favorite thing was you know just like empty calories, tr- uh, garbage, essentially. Um, yeah. But I, but I think like you know, there's a strong tradition of like genre storytelling that goes back to as long as there has been storytelling, you know, like Gilgamesh or whatever, like some weird stuff happens in that. Um, and obviously uh, the, you know, the Greek epics <laughs> like have some unbelievable parts to them as well. Um, so, yeah, I just think it's like there's, you know, we, we can exist with different levels of these things. And because this, you know, the snooty old Martin Scorsese, um, you know, dismisses your thing that doesn't mean like, you know, it's go. It's gonna be snuffed out or anything. And I mean, who is like, yeah. you know, the, the the market has spoken. Obviously, that like people adore these movies and go back to see them again and again. And then they're they've been ruling the box office for a decade and seemingly aren't going to stop anytime soon. And Scorsese can still make his little movies, you know, <laughs> whatever. But they're never going to be as massively popular. And and probably the same way that like you know, uh, well, I mean, I don't know. It's so complicated. Like. You know, uh, I think they didn't they. I think I saw that they also asked Francis Ford Coppola the same question um, about our Marvel movie cinema, and he said no. And like, you know, Francis Ford Coppola turned The Godfather, which was basically the equivalent of like John Grisham or sub John Grisham, you know, popular, uh, you know, paperback kind of thing into <laughs> into what some consider the greatest movie ever made. So yeah, there's just all sorts of ways to. You can go with this. I like. I do think some. You know, there are some movies that are just like roller coasters, and I don't think. I don't know. I don't think you could like call an actual roller coaster art. Like that, that's that's it's some other different experience, or like an escape room is an art or something. But you know, you can. I don't know. There's there's, there's parts of these movies that are <laughs> that are like yeah, deal with he- real human issues. There's parts that are just silliness, and there's parts that are CGI spectacle. And yeah, I, I'm, uh, I've, uh, is people who have watched the show over the years know that I, you know, I like things that are uh, low culture and I, I also like some things that are high culture and I think it's fine to like both of them and we don't need to like kick, kick one out or, or anything. But um, I want to mention uh, Ross Douthat wrote his column over the weekend somewhat about this and also about what we're going to talk about next, at least briefly, which is the Joker movie and yeah, it does kind of seem. I think you know, Douthat has been pursuing this idea of, of cultural decadence, and he actually just announced within the last week or so that he's publishing a book next year on cultural decadence. And I, I kind of agree with him in some ways about the like the decadent nature of these movies because they're you know they're they're 
they're they're not inventing it. They're not at their core something new. Like these are stories that a handful of people made up like in New York City, you know, 50 plus years ago. And they're going through these stories again and again and again. And so there's like, you know, we can't come up with anything new. It's all, everything's a, a remake. And then like so much, so much money and human effort is put into these things to make it look like that, you know, a realistic alien is really coming down to the nation of Wakanda or whatever. And it's like, you know, is this real? Like, should all these people who are great artists and, computer scientists and so forth be like directing their their efforts into making like the verisimilitude ever more fine um you know and it's you know where no everything looks like it's it's real even though we know it's not i don't know about that but but i people should check out that death article i think it's interesting i um, unfortunately did not get a chance to read it okay well well why don't we do you have anything else to say on scorsese oh, why don't you mention uh, your, the, the little um the like mashup um video that you that you made with the uh with the scorsese uh oeuvre oh thank you thank you um uh it's not online yet but it'll be online tuesday which is hopefully maybe before this post online or uh, um i i did a riff on there's there's been a viral video meme of people taking this um key and peel sketch which is about Obama hugging a bunch of supporters after a speech with varying levels of embrace um, and using that as a format to uh, rank things. And the, the guy that generated all this used it to rank all the Marvel movies. And I just decided to do this, the same things with all of Scorsese's films. And it's kind of a limiting format because you've got this video that's already, all the beats are laid out. So you've got to slot in your choices. Right. So some of my choices are not totally perfect, but I'm kind of happy with it. Um, it really represents my opinion on Scorsese's films. And like with Scorsese and with the, um, the Coen brothers, I think you can tell a lot about a film fan about where they slot things. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of basically all Scorsese's work. You know, I love them all really, but relatively speaking, I've got my my favorites and not so favorites. Yeah, so that like I said, I, like I emailed you this this made me laugh out loud uh, literally multiple times when I was watching it because I mean the under it's like no offense to you it's, it's the underlying skit ma- mainly that is that is funny. Um, <laughs> Of and it's, it's okay. We'll just we'll include the link to it, and, and pe- people can watch it. Okay, so so the transition here to our next topic, which is uh, the movie Joker. It's just Joker, right? No, not the Joker. Yeah, Joker yeah. is that. So you've seen the movie. I haven't seen the movie, uh, but I have seen a lot of people chattering about it because this seems to be maybe the most chattered about movie of the year, uh, which is strange. But it seems like the, a lot of the movie is an homage to 70s Scorsese movies, in particular Taxi Driver and King of Comedy. Uh, at least that's what the interpretation of some critics. So what, 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 do you agree with that? And what did you, what did you think of Joker? I, and I, I think that's more than an interpretation. I think that's like the mission statement of the movie. And one of the primary disappointments in the film is that it doesn't really deliver anything more than that other than really – uh, almost flawless execution on all the technical levels of delivering that promise. You get Taxi Driver plus um, King of Comedy equals Joker. That's the equation. You get nothing more other than the fact, first of all, you know, Joaquin Phoenix, We all it's no mystery or secret that this guy is one of our most talented performers. And you see this, there's something about the character of the Joker that's very attractive to actors. Uh-huh. It allows them to bear some sort of psychic uh, depth about themselves and, and, and release it onto the screen with this just furious power. Um, and he, he definitely delivers on that score. Um, I'm, I'm a little baffled why there's Oscar buzz for him. I, I don't understand that particular aspect of the hype, but um, uh, my favorite part of the movie actually is totally orthogonal to all of the discussion thus far about it. And it's just that it's my favorite depiction of the city of Gotham Uh in the history of uh, movie adaptations of Batman. The city itself is a character. It's a social force. And you're the the guy with the the literary acumen that I don't have. What (laughs) is that? What is that famous Saul Bellow quote about? 
a city like grinding you down to like a pearl or something. Oh, I don't know that the one. Way to the ocean. <laughs> you know the one I'm talking about from Augie March. I can't remember. It. I can't. If I I have I did read Augie March, but about 15 years ago. I don't I don't remember that quote. But um, so there's some hmm. there's something about just the gravity of the city just weighing you down, and and the the choice of. Uh, making an entire film about the Joker, uh, that's the angle that they took. They took all of Gotham sort of weighing down on this one character and where it went. And, um, you know, it's not as original as like the Tim Burton stylings visually. It totally is just a ripoff of Taxi Driver uh, visually, but it works really well. Okay. So, so, okay. So the, so creating the, so it looked cool. And um, what do you think? So what do you think of the scene that's become somewhat iconic, especially on Twitter? It's on the poster of him dancing down the um, the concrete steps. What, what do you think when you saw that? Um, I think one of one of the problems with the movie is that it it doesn't really exceed the trailer any. I mean, it's just like an extended version of the trailer. And that moment almost kind of works better in the trailer than it does in the context of the film. Mm-hmm. Um because um, the the character goes through an arc of depravity. Um, he's sort of a forgotten um, discard of, of Gotham society, and uh, he's forged into this evil, uh, iconic character through that journey. And by the time that scene happens in the movie, it's he's far gone, fucking total evil. So you, you can't really totally embrace the let your freak flag fly cinematic joy of it but it's 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 amazing visual and it's performed well i mean it's a lot of fun and i apparently like people are wherever this really happened people are taking photos of themselves or something i think it's i just read somewhere it must have been on twitter that it was it's in the bronx somewhere and yeah i was joking that like people are going to seriously injure themselves trying to recreate this scene on either these stairs or other <laughs> stairs. Like in their, you know, if they're in their house and their socks or something, they're going to fall down the stairs. And then if they're on this like three story concrete staircase, they might, uh, you know, they might seriously hurt themselves. Um, so, uh, don't do that if you're out there, but, um, yeah. Yeah. But there, okay. there's one other unavoidable part about this. And I hesitate to tip my toe into these waters because it's just a shark infested area. But I was surprised at the, the level of prejudgment of the film. There was um, a lot of anger about just the existence of the film from folks that I would consider ideologically sympathetic to myself on the political spectrum. Um, the, the far left, uh, which I kind of consider myself part of, um, just came out claws uh, ready to tear this thing down and decry uh, even the existence of it. And uh, the primary critique was that they felt that it would make you feel empathy for a character. That's like one of these uh, toxic incel mm-hmm. jerks that's ruining online discussion to begin with. Um, and I think you can make that strained comparison if you really want to, but I don't think that that's the film that the filmmakers intended to uh, make. And I, I, I would never uh, disagree with anyone who would want to make that judgment for themselves. Like, hey, that movie's not for me. I don't want to see it. It it seems like, you know, not something that I would find enjoyable. And I totally respect that. But where that turned into like a pre-boycott and and a, a, a damnation and making this, this, this totally untouchable film, I, I, did, I didn't get it beforehand and I don't get it afterwards. Um, if you're going to make that kind of moral uh, critique of the film, the, the same exact moral critique could be made of Taxi Driver. Um, and uh, I, I just don't think it holds a lot of water. Okay, yeah. Like I said, there's been an incredible amount of chatter about this movie, especially, and a lot of it before anyone actually saw it. And I don't know, I, I don't exactly understand why that happened. Um, maybe, maybe it was some sort of like, you know, marketing plan by the studio to get people, like people riled up. And so they're talking about Joker, Joker, Joker. And then you feel like you have to see it to understand what the whole controversy is about. But yeah, there was, I mean, there's this, um, actually, so there's this false, uh, idea that the shooter in Aurora, Colorado in like 2011 or whatever it was, the Dark Knight Rises, 
um, was dressed as the Joker um, when he shot up the movie theater. Um, that apparently was reported shortly afterwards, but he was not. He just had dyed hair, but he, he didn't have any um, face paint on. And he didn't say, I'm the Joker, which is, was apparently even like reported in the Times or something. So there, so, but that, that idea, I guess, was irresistible to like the minds of many people that someone would dress up as a supervillain and then actually go kill a bunch of people. Um, so that stuck in the, that stuck in people's minds. And so some movie theaters like had things posted saying like undercover police officers are like in the screening in order to protect anyone from, you know, the spree killers who are like eager to shoot up a theater. Um, so that was, you know, kind of like hysteria level, um, overreaction yeah. and, you know, the uh, plenty, you know, people yeah. will get shot up in Walmarts and, uh, you know, all sorts of other places in America because there's a lot of guns in America. So, yeah, it, it reminds me of the, the hysteria around, uh, you know, Hinckley shooting Reagan, uh, you know, taxi driver was kind of based blamed for that, mm-hmm. uh, very wrongly and stupidly. I mean, the guy was, uh, clearly psychologically disturbed. Um, so, yeah. And then there's just this, I mean, this is too broad a topic to start into now, but like this whole discussion that's been intensified over the past five to 10 years about, uh, like the moral place of art and whether, you know, if, uh, let's say art is created by someone who we know is a bad person, uh, art has some sort of like problematic uh, part in it. If, if like, yeah, yeah, if a character who is a bad person is presented sympathetically, then like that's, that's either bad or like could be actively harmful to the like simple minded people out there who are who see a sympathetic portrayal of the Joker, then think, well, um, you know, maybe I'll be like a Joker. There actually was a really funny tweet that said, um, this must have been before the movie even came out, that said, uh, I didn't like how in the final scene of the movie, uh, the Joker turned to face the camera and said, uh, now you do Joker stuff. <laughs> you know, like, like people just like, who, like maybe a child would act like this, but you don't, you're not bringing a child to this movie. Um, so yeah, that's just a stupid way to think about art that's going to like cause these direct, direct <laughs> actions. And you know, uh, sympathy for an incel, like, um, you know, you can have sympathy for someone uh, without, like, agreeing with them or or with how, you know, you can still lay some sort of moral blame on them, uh, even if you have sympathetic feelings towards them. Like, that's, like, part of yeah. of art is supposed to be, like, exposing, like, people who are different than you and and you develop some form of sympathy for them. Whether that sympathy, like, can carry, out, can carry over into the real world, I think, is no one really, uh, really knows and probably doesn't. Uh, could never work very strongly, but yeah, it's it's all been it's all been very strange, and um, uh, yeah, but I guess like I said, the market has spoken on this one too. It's like one of the best uh, openings for an R-rated R-rated movie, and weirdly, like some of the reactionary types on Twitter were like celebrating that because it became a culture war object. They're like, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like that guy Ian Miles, Ian Miles Chong, um, I think was was boasting about how good the movie was doing. So it's like, so it also just falls into the, everything is culture war. Everything is left, right. And, you know, people just want to fight all the time online and, you know, and we'll just move on to the next thing to fight about in a week or so. Uh, But would you, so if, would you recommend people see this movie if they haven't seen it yet? Yeah. I mean, if if you're on the fence, uh, I'd give it, you know, seven and a half, eight out of 10, uh, Todd Phillips is kind of limited as far as a filmmaker goes. He, uh, but he, he delivers what's on the tin. It, it, and it doesn't, it didn't, uh, it didn't compromise. There could have been a, a cheesy, uh, way out at the end, I think. And they, they didn't do, uh, anything where they would hold back. So uh, they committed to the, to the outline and the premise and, and delivered. I, th- I think it's pretty entertaining. Okay. Yeah, I have to. Uh, my one, my one ultra comic nerd uh, disagreement with the film, though, is um, this particular incarnation of the Joker, in my opinion, could never be a useful foil to Batman. He doesn't have any cognitive abilities that seem at the like strategic level to where he could really screw with Batman. Mm-hmm. Uh, this guy, if he went up with against the Batman, he would be over, you know, 12 seconds into the story. <laughs> so, uh, That's if they could have just shown there, maybe it was just one scene of him demonstrating some sort of genius that was hidden, uh, I think could have gone a long way towards really fitting in with the comic world. But I, I think they were explicitly, you know, 
um, not wanting to do any of that. They were more interested in doing some sort of character study. Right. And has there, I mean, so they're rebooting Batman again uh, with Robert Pattinson playing Batman. Um, I don't live on the world where that occurs. <laughs> I'm in denial of that. Okay. So, yeah. So, you know, yes. the, the, the fourth or so fifth, fourth or fifth iteration of the Batman character on the, on the silver screen is going to film and come out in a couple of years. Um, and, uh, but have they discussed, it seemed like they were talking about um, Penguin being the, the villain in, the, in that one. But, but I mean, would they like, usually with these movies, they like sign them to like, you have to do at least three of these superhero yeah, movies yeah. so that they're sequels. Like, do you think they'll ever bring in, because after what you just said, that, you know, Batman could just punch him in the face and he'd be done with or whatever. Um, could, well, they, I think could they bring one... a Walking Phoenix Joker in? I, I don't think they could. I think the, the, the timelines would prohibit it. This one feels like it's set in the 80s. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> unless <laughs> the new uh, Matt Reeves Batman is in that same time frame, and I don't think it's going to be, um, I don't think uh, that that could ever happen. So maybe there could be a Batman, a new Batman within that world because it's so successful, which I, I would I would like to see that. Um, and I'm probably begrudgingly going to go to the – the Twilight Dudes Batman at some point, even though um, I, I've I've not seen I, I've admittedly skipped most of his films that are supposed to actually be good, just because I saw him in the Harry Potter films and thought he was dreadful, and I didn't ever want to see that dude's face on a screen ever again. <laughs> but um, many of my friends are trying to convince me that he's got talent. So yeah, I've, I'm sure at some point I'll go. Yeah, I actually don't. Uh, think i um i don't even remember him from harry potter but i did see some of the twilight movies they weren't particularly good but yeah he has like gotten a reputation as being a an actually good serious actor since then so i'll i was told with old judgment and uh, we'll have to see okay so we've gone almost an hour do you want to just talk about oh, your, your projects or was there sure. a, another topic we, we thought about star wars trailer but i guess i really don't have anything to say for star wars trailer <laughs> no no i i had to switch Switch hats just because, you know, this is the golden era of the Astros and I got to show off all my hats. Right. So is that, is that the 70s? Is that the 70s hat? Yeah, yeah. Well, this technically, like the one that I've got right now, has got a rainbow bill on it. Uh-huh. They never actually wore one like this. This is just kind of an artistic interpretation. I see. Um, okay. Well, why don't we talk? Yeah, why don't we talk about your projects? Um, so one of them is uh, about Orson Welles, but in a. Um, fantastical way so why don't you why don't you describe that one yes uh i just launched today uh a campaign to fund a graphic novel uh called orson wells warrior of the worlds and it's about orson wells and his secret life defending earth from aliens the premise is basically the legendary war of the worlds broadcast that uh got broadcast in 1938 uh, which we all thought was a dra- uh, dramatization. Turns out that an actual alien invasion really happened, and Wells happened to uh, participate in it and became ensnared into a secret uh, organization to uh, defend our, our shining uh, jewel of Earth from all sorts of incursions from the uh, alien worlds. And the the story is actually we're hoping to do a a, a two volume uh, epic story that is going to span the entire career of Orson Welles, and there's going to be each chapter is illustrated by a different artist, and each chapter not every single one but most of them are inspired by a film from Orson Welles's canon. Mm-hmm. And each artist is going to deliver something that's kind of in the style of one of those films. Wow. And um, the first volume uh, has like five or six different artists contributing to it. There's a noir chapter. There's a Citizen Kane-inspired uh, chapter. And um, it's a whole lot of fun. I'm uh, getting to work with a lot of really talented artists. And uh, it's it's just a fun idea. Yeah, it looks cool. So you had so you sent me. I guess this will be viewable on the Kickstarter page. A kind of animated trailer um, for it. And uh, who did you get to do the voice for uh, the Orson Welles voice? Because that seemed almost exactly like the voice I remember from when he was like on the Critic and other like appearances. Well, it's uh, it's uh, voiced by the incomparable Maurice Lamarche, who has 
done several different incarnations of Wells imitations throughout his career. Okay. Um, I, I think the main one most people know him from is from a series called uh, Pinky and the Brain, which was birthed out of Animaniacs. Right. Okay. How'd you get him? That's, that's impressive. <laughs> I was, I was, he is just an insanely generous person. Um, I met him at a comic convention. I showed him the proof of concept of the project I said, what we'd really love to do is we'd like to do a trailer and have Orson Welles narrating it. And the best way to get Orson Welles to narrate something is to get <laughs> you to narrate something. And he immediately went into Orson voice mode. Mm-hmm. Like when I was interacting with him, he, he was he was flipping through the pages I showed him. And he was talking to me as Orson. And up until that point, I had been working on the project already for about six months and researching the life of Wells and, you know, lifelong. I've been a lifelong fan of Wells. And so it was kind of weird and surreal to almost be talking to Orson Wells. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. You know, he probably he probably was also the guy doing the voice on the critic. That'd be my guess. Cause it, I, think he was. I think he was. Yeah. Um, and what he says, the, the immortal line that I remember is, at least I think this is the critic, is when he's he's eating these frozen peas or he's, he's doing a commercial for frozen peas. And he says they're full yes. of delicious penis. <laughs> and then he storms off the set. Um, I, I was I was like dying when I saw that. You know, that's <laughs> like at age nine. Um, so, OK, that's really cool. And then uh, so. um a fun, just a fun fact: the um, I'm in prison in New Jersey currently, and the um, place where the attack happened, um, supposedly, uh, allegedly, uh, is is very near here, Grover's Mill. Oh, really? Yeah. So there's, I think it's essentially an unincorporated you know land spot, and so there's not really anything there. But there's a, there's a coffee shop that's in the general area that is called like Grover's Grover's Mill Coffee, and all the decorations inside are. War of the World stuff um, from oh, wow. different various incarnations, you know, post- posters and news clippings from the original and, and uh, paintings and stuff. Um, yeah, so, so central New Jersey is where, you know, where the strike happened. Um, okay, and do you want to talk about the, um, the, the documentary also? Sure, yeah. Um, this summer I released a documentary and it, uh, it's titled Tabling. It's basically a grounded view of what it's like to be on the other side of the table at a comic convention. I I know that there's been a lot of uh, discussion and sort of cultural immersion in the idea of the uh, the comic book convention. It's kind of gone really mainstream and there have been a lot of TV shows that have had episodes take place at a convention and cosplay has exploded and is all over social media and there's usually a big show every month or so so it feels like um comic conventions are uh, entering into the cultural zeitgeist Uh a bit in the past few years and um i went to a show that's a very independent creator oriented uh called heroes con in north carolina and i just kind of observed um, some friends and collaborators that I know while they were setting up their tables, while they were interacting with customers. And also I interviewed about a dozen people um, that had tables at the show talking about their experiences, not just at that show, but other shows throughout their career. And I basically ran the, the gamut from someone who was having a table at the show for the very first time uh, all the way to some folks who have been to thousands of shows and had movie deals signed up uh, based on their properties. Uh-huh. So um, I, I think it's a fun thing. Uh, it's on Vimeo. Just search for tabling a Comic-Con documentary and you'll find it. Okay. And, uh, and on the Blogging Heads page, uh, we'll put the link below. Um, yeah, it does, seem, it's, uh, it does seem like a weird experience. You know, and I, there's a... You know, like conventions, fan conventions are becoming more popular, and I guess people are not embarrassed to go to them in the way that maybe they were 30 years ago when I when I was a kid. And so, yeah, this you know, the, just sitting there, the people who sit there and are shaking hands and taking photos and trying to make some money um, for a long day, it does seem like a very strange experience. Have you have you been the person sitting behind the table? At, I've only days? done it a few t- a few times myself. Um, and hopefully next year, I, I didn't do a lot this year on the convention circuit, but next year I plan to go to several. Um, so, uh, I'm, st- I'm still kind of learning. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, yeah, it's good to see that, 
the, the you know DC and Marvel have become ever more powerful um, because of the movies and also just kind of like market consolidation. At least it seems to me as someone who hasn't paid super close attention to the industry that like, but it, it, so it's good that there's still the, you know, like independent people, independent creators are still working and are putting things out there. And I guess I assume that the online world makes it easier to, you know, for, for, for a independent creator to at least get, get noticed for, for something than, than it would have when, when we were kids. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that topic actually comes up in the, in the documentary about the, the relationship between building fan bases online, interacting with people at shows. It's an interesting kind of weird sort of symbiosis that happens. Okay. So we've gone just over an hour. We should probably end it there. Um, so check out, uh, Milton's Kickstarter and his documentary. Please Um, give me money. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, you can subscribe to the show in iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you can rate and review it. Even, um, you can do all sorts of things. Uh, you can follow Milton, your, your citizen Milton. Is that right? Yeah. Citizen Milton on Twitter. I am, uh, R E A C W A R Y H C W on Twitter. You can follow us. Um, to your heart's content. Uh, so thank, thank you, Milton, uh, for coming on talking about comic books and other things. And maybe you will come back on a fourth time. And I think if you did so, you would be the first person to be on this particular show four times. I, I'll have to check the check the records, but uh, so it's the, the competition is on to see who is the first who is the first person <laughs> to be on here four four times. I'm honored. I'm honored, sir. <laughs> okay. Uh, so thanks, Milton. <laughs> I'll talk to you later. All right. Thanks.